regulated. This podcast focuses on regulatory and corporate developments in highly regulated spaces. I'm Christian Bax, and I used to regulate medical marijuana. I'm Tony Glover, and I formerly regulated alcoholic beverages and casino gambling. Now, we're regulated. We're transitioning into a weekly release schedule where we address the most interesting stories affecting investors, operators, and advocates in the marijuana, alcohol, and casino gaming space. And so today we're going to jump right into Tony's first story, which is out of Utah. Yeah, thanks, Christian. I saw a story from Marijuana Business Daily back on August 22nd. I thought it was worth discussing in light of some of our previous conversations on the pod. Uh, The article title is Utah Lawmakers Consider Ditching a State-Run Medical Cannabis System. And I've got a few lines I'd like to share from that. Utah legislators are drafting a proposal to scrap the planned state-run medical marijuana dispensary system and instead will increase the number of private facilities, which should boost business opportunities and sales. Lawmakers are considering the change after facing pressure from county attorneys who said the system put public employees at risk of being prosecuted under federal drug laws. The law now calls for seven private cannabis pharmacies with a state-run central fill pharmacy that will distribute the remainder of medical mar- ma- the remainder of medical marijuana orders through Utah's 13 local health departments. The law now calls for seven private cannabis pharmacies with a state-run central fill pharmacy that will distribute the remainder of medical marijuana through Utah's 13 local health departments. Under the proposal, according to the Republican Senate Majority Leader, medical cannabis would instead be distributed through up to 12 private dispensaries. I I, I think this is really interesting. You know, I think Christian and I both indicated on the podcast a a bit of reluctance um, about state-run cannabis, um, state-run businesses. And I think the impact of this is is really threefold. One, you know, the most obvious thing, we're really narrowly avoiding another state-run business in America. Um, The reports out of Utah make it clear that the officials both state and local, were pretty uncomfortable handling the situation, which is understandable. And it sounds like the state officials were a bit uncomfortable with the idea of running the business. What do you think, Christian? So, you know, I'm a little disappointed um, because Utah is a pretty uh, politically and demographically a, a homogenous state, and it's a pretty red state. And so, I, I mean, if there's one state in the country that at this moment that I thought would would actually be a, a pretty interesting laboratory for that kind of policy. It, it would have been Utah, and so uh, how do you feel though? How is your regulatory heartburn as we as Utah seems to be moving away from a state centric model? Look, it's an uncomfortable situation. You look at you know how risk averse state employees are by nature, and it's understandable. You spend some time under the fire, you realize. You know, sometimes you have a choice between being aggressive in your job or keeping your job, right? And in this context, for you to continue your state career, you're potentially uh, committing violations of federal law 
and potentially putting yourself at jeopardy. Look, there's been continued conversations from or discussions from the Trump administration, including the president himself just last week, stating that, you know, uh, marijuana regulation is really up to the states. But, you know, as we've seen when Attorney General Sessions came in, um, there's always a chance for a future political appointee by this president or by a future president at Department of Justice that changes that. So I completely understand. I'd be extremely uncomfortable if I was a Utah public servant <laughs> that was being put in charge of, of substantial corporate activities related to cannabis. They don't pay enough for that. Um, it, that's just it, it is it is what it is. Now, I, I, I may have missed this in your description, but so is the is the fill is the the central fill completely gone. So is it going to be completely through a privatized distribution network or is there still going to be kind of a safety net state distribution system um, where right. the dispensaries aren't covering? Yeah, it sounds like there will be that safety net system and they're going to operate out of the the local health departments that run by the state. So it, it sounds like it's a dispensary of last resort. It's a it's an interesting hybrid system. So there's there still will be some state involvement, but they're not going to be. It sounds like they're not going to be responsible for carrying the bulk of the the commerce. Right. So it seems like it begs the question. So does the state just not want to be out front? They they're okay being they're okay still being wedded to the program and still still the the legal jeopardy if there is any is still there. Right. It it seems like they're. They're trying to mitigate their risk a bit, but th- this does not right. seem to have eliminated the risk that they seem to be wanting to avoid. Right. I agree. This is this is um, probably aggressive mitigation, but it's not alleviation. Right. So let me tell you one other thought I had about about this and why I was a little disappointed. Right. Um, one of the sneaky elements of cannabis regulation that doesn't really get a lot of a, a lot of play unless you're actually in the in the industry or serving the industry is, is the involvement of local government. Um, and a, a lot of local governments, especially more rural or conservative areas, are not fans of medical marijuana or, or you know, or of its of its sister program of, of a recreational program. And you know, you have ordinances, you have bans, you have moratoriums, you have a lot of uh, levers that local governments can pull if they don't think that their constituency is in favor of you know a medical marijuana program. And and my thinking in a state like Utah was that um, your you're going to run into issues frequently with with their local governments in zoning and that when you had a private when you now privatize it it's good for the you know the economics in the private sector but at the same time that those private private businesses are now going to individually have to deal with local governments whereas it seems like the state going into a state like Utah would have a little bit more uh, oomph with the program right. kind of getting local governments to toe the line and, and allow for an expansion of a medical marijuana program. Well, look, uh, one of the other points I was going to mention that, that I think is uh, potentially impactful is that there is going to be a special session, according to the governor, Governor Herbert, over in Utah. So um, it's going to be interesting to see what legislation comes out of that process, because we've seen in the alcoholic beverage world, Utah laws are, are just they're tough to deal with. I mean, they, they, they've been still having a discussion about allowing full strength beer in the state of Utah. It's 2019. So if you look at the way that they treat malt beverages in the state, I can't imagine that there's going to be a ton of uh, comfortable, friendly, uh, regulatory, attorney-friendly loopholes in this new Utah legislation uh, Utah legislation that comes out. But, yeah, I, I think it's, it's 
uh, it's probably a great time to be a lobbyist and a regulatory attorney in Utah. And, you know, early shout out, shout out to that group <laughs> coming into a special session. Um, your billables would be great. Congratulations. So there's one other thing, Tony, that I'm I'm watching real closely, and that's that's perception. And the reason I say perception is because you have this really interesting dichotomy that's developed between Colorado and Utah, where a, a big chunk of Utah's economy is tourism, and a big chunk of that uh, tourism is is you know skiing, snowboarding, is is mountain sports. And over the past decade, you've had this this bifurcation between Colorado and Utah, where Colorado is kind of seen as the younger, hipper. Um, uh, kind of destination, almost like a Vegas for skiing, whereas Utah is seen as, you know, Disney World. It's the more conservative, it's the more family-friendly, and, and they've kind of leaned into that. They've embraced that. And so you're going to have people in the state of Utah who who very much do not want to give an inch on the perception that they would be moving away from like a, a family-friendly Disney approach to um, right. to just, just kind of their culture, to their society. Um, and this, this is a limited medical marijuana program, but you know you you do have naysayers out there that that right. see any movement in that direction as a, as a negative. And that's 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 all perception. I mean, you, we can pull all those boogeymen out of the closet for any issue. And you know, and and it, there's a perfect family friendly example in our home state that we can look at, which is Orlando. And there's a few sort of major uh, events that have happened over the past 25 years that we can compare it to. But I would guess that if we looked at the track of Orlando tourism and, and, and revenues at Disney resorts and things of that nature, I, I suspect that the the you know the implementation of medical marijuana in Florida has had no impact. There's certainly no negative impact on that number. So I, I would tell our friends in Utah to chill out a little bit. <laughs> I don't think I, I'm pretty sure that a family that's looking to visit Utah from Pennsylvania or from the state of Washington isn't going to be alarmed by an extraordinarily conservative medical marijuana regime, especially when you consider that the state that they're coming from probably has a more liberal system. And, and when you look at the polling behind this number, not only does that state probably have a more liberal system, the visitor probably approves of it. So it, it's not a big deal. Calm out. Orlando survived. Utah will survive. It seems like the government in Utah is is a little reticent for this program, and I, and I point that out just because um, the Salt Lake City or the Salt Lake Tribune had an article recently I was reading up on before this podcast, and it was a very interesting um, move that Utah made on cultivation licenses, where they initially had ten licenses that were available. They had eighty one applicants for those ten licenses. So a few months later, when they award their licenses, they award eight, and the uh, the regulator uh, in a statement said that they issue they chose to issue eight instead of ten to avoid an overabundance of cannabis. So like, can you imagine something like that happening where you have a limited <laughs> like license cycle up to ten licenses, and they cut twenty percent of the licenses because they don't want an overabundance of licensees? Um, and so it it tells me Utah Utah is not. Is not there is is this is going to be a pretty uh, limited program and, and kind of we're on while we're on the topic of, of boogeymen kind of hiding in the closet. There's one other really interesting boogeyman that's that's especially impactful for a, a state like Utah. Again, where skiing and mountain sports are so important, and a lot of the population like lives in the mountains. Is you know there are 122 ski areas that operate nationally and that are on public land. And so many of the ski resorts up in uh, up in Utah 
operate on land that's owned by the National Forest System, which means they're owned by the federal government. Um, and the, obviously, fed, marijuana is federally illegal. And so you, you run into a legal gray area where you don't necessarily have the same state protections for a medical marijuana program because you're operating on federal land. And I've seen, I've seen that used you know, on the message boards in, when, you, when you kind of look in Utah and you kind of dig around what, what people are kind of talking about on the ground there. And that's that's another lever that seems to get, be getting pulled is, oh, yeah, you know, you, we don't want cannabis on federal land, even though Colorado has been experiencing this for a decade. What do you think about that? There's certainly the potential for a challenge there, but I guess it really comes down to how zealous or overzealous those rangers uh, and folks that work for the Park Service and USDA are going to be on federal grounds. And if they're really being serious about this and chasing down every puff of smoke and puff of vapor in the park, um, you could see some increased activity in that space. So that'd be interesting to see. Look, it looks like this development signals to the growing number of cannabis investors that Utah is open for business. Utah has a challenge. I mean, its population is just about uh, equal to just Miami-Dade County. But still, with the amount of private funding that's running in this industry, I'm sure there are many that are eager to for any opportunity. You know, what do you think about Utah as a market for investors? What's the what's the opportunity here? I'd say it's good, not great. Anytime these multi-state operators are who are building this portfolio um, and kind of trying to build uh, an underlying value, especially for the public companies. Uh, they like they like securing these limited state licenses. Uh, the issue I really see is is a there's a, a small population uh, of only three million people, and b I mean Utah is a big state and it's really spread out, and so you 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 don't really yeah, have there's that. real real logistical challenges with distributing across Utah. Exactly, and it's and and I'm really concerned about the local about like kind of local government zoning and ordinances in the sense that. That Utah already has, you know, it doesn't have that bright blue dot in the middle of the state. Salt Lake City is a is a pretty conservative place, um, and then when you kind of go out and you're going out to the rural communities in Utah, which again are, are very spread out and aren't don't have really large population pockets, it's you're you're going to have to do a lot of legwork to secure property in those areas that are appropriate for zoning. And I do not see a situation where, you know interesting, lucrative markets, towns and cities in Utah allow for kind of an abundance of, of cannabis facilities. And so you, you may have, you know, a couple dispensaries within each city, but unless there's kind of some kind of groundswell or, or some significant change, I, I just don't seeing dispensaries or, or grows or even processing facilities really being able to get a strong foothold in that state. And, you know, you look at just the, the political landscape for Utah and then, you know, the last Senate race, there was only two, there were only two counties in Utah, which were Grand uh, count, County and Summit County, Summit County being where Park City is, which is probably, you know, one of the few blue dots in Utah. That, that was the only place Mitt Romney didn't get, you know, at least 50% of the vote in the, in the last Senate election. So, um, and, and even then it was like 50.2 or 50.3, I mean, up for, for the opponent. So I don't like it for the market size. I, I think it's going to be really difficult for um, the operators to get facilities. And, but, but 
the only way they're able going to make money and be able to retain value is unless they just they knock it out of the park as far as capturing market share or Utah holds on to that really strict limited very 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 limited model and allows them to basically right. get a very strong government protected market share. Well, and of course the challenge with Utah is that if the regulatory structure is is broken or doesn't uh, yield the desired results you know, it's too hard to operate in the state. It's too hard to get products to, to patients that need it. If any of those issues arise, if we can learn anything from watching them grapple with antiquated alcoholic beverage regulations over the years, is that the legislature won't fix it. So if this, if they come out of the gate with an imperfect product, it may be here to stay, and that would be unfortunate. So we'll be interesting to watch, and, and we'll circle back on this issue if anything fun happens in special session or with big-name investors or MSOs coming into the state. So now moving into another really interesting story from the last week. On September 4th, John Hopkins Medicine announced the launch of the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research to study compounds like LSD and psilocybin for a range of mental health problems, including anorexia, addiction, and depression. This is something that Tony and I talked about in our last podcast. But it's really interesting because this study is coming with some money. Uh, The center is the first of its kind in the country, and it was established with $17 million in commitments from private donors, Um, which is interesting because, you know, it's something that Tony and I were talking, when we were talking about in our last podcast, a lot of the studies were coming out of Johns Hopkins, and, and they have kind of created this foothold in the United States for giving some credibility to research into what's called psychedelic medicine. One of the reasons why this is so important is because it's seen by by the people who are watching this as an opportunity for Johns Hopkins to dig deep into medical and scientific studies. And one of the issues with a lot of the news stories that we've seen about the potential of some psychedelics is the fact that the scientific evidence isn't really completely there. One of the reasons why is because dealing with psilocybin and other psychedelics, it's hard to create and execute you know, a peer-reviewed double-blind study. Uh, part of that is because it's illegal. But secondly, it's, it's kind of the, the drug that you're dealing with. Most scientific experiments have um, are, are blind in the sense that you have uh, one or you have two or more groups. One of those groups is always a control group, which is given a placebo, so that they're they're not impacted in any way by the study. And you use the, that group of participants as a baseline, and then you have this other group that is you know thinks that they you know they know that they're part of a study, but don't necessarily know that they've been given the active ingredient and believe you know they could have been given the placebo. So there's a little bit of skepticism there as well. Um, but in psilocybin. You know when you have it, right? There's no, there's not really disguising to a patient whether or not um, they have a significant dose of psilocybin in their system, um, especially because you know these articles, some of these studies that we've been referencing, where they they are applying double the normal recreational dose to these patients, so they feel it. However, Johns Hopkins seems to have the resources and the personnel, and you know the the money that they're bringing in, they're able to have six full time faculty five postdoc scientists and enough money to cover their their current and and new studies into this area 
So it seems like they're going to be able to jump that that hurdle a bit and and improve the scientific um, validity of the tests and and give us all a little bit more confidence that that what seems to be happening is actually happening um, in in practical medical applications. Tony, you have anything to add to that? Well, I have to admit I'm a little distracted um, by this announcement, and I want to circle back to something that you said at the beginning, which is that the first trials include, number one, potential treatment for anorexia, number two, potential treatment for psychological distress and cognitive impairment connected to early Alzheimer's, and and number three, and this is a near-future trial, so I guess not uh, officially slated yet, but they want to treat the substance to determine whether uh, test the substance to determine whether it affects opiate use disorder. So when I hear those three <laughs> things, I all I see, all I'm thinking about is dollar signs. I, I'm hearing one billion, two billion, three billion dollar opportunity here with these trials. It's going to be really interesting to watch. And you mentioned perception before in our previous topic. And I think that's something that plays in here. This just goes, you know, we talked about this a few weeks ago about investors considering entering this space and looking at sort of municipal governments and the federal government and which way it may go. Getting Johns Hopkins out there, uh, really getting to the meat of it with these first trials, I think is really going to provide a lot of cover for investors and their boards um, and their executives at their firms who are trying to sign off on some potential uh, funding. And interestingly, looking where the money is coming from. So I thought this was fascinating in that two million of of the initial startup capital for this um, this 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 new entity at Johns Hopkins is is a man named Tim Ferriss, who is you know the, the <laughs> speaking of investors, here right? We go the entrepreneur we go. <laughs> and author behind the the Four Hour Work Week and uh, Four Hour Body, and you know he he's he's written a lot of. Um, uh, kind of n- newer, hipper self-help books, um, and you know he's definitely uh, I, what I would describe as a futurist. He's someone who's kind of always looking at the next thing, and you know some people love him, some people don't love him so much. But the fact that he's involved with this, if if, if Tim Ferriss is good at anything, it is at creating publicity and at building a brand, right? Um, you need look no further than his podcast, which has been become very successful, his multiple New York Times bestselling books, is that now he is involved. He's a, basically a principal in this, uh, in, this, in this group. And the fact that he's brought, you know, more than 10% of their funding. And I would anticipate him becoming kind of a face and a mouthpiece for um, psychedelic medicine as well. And so, you know, you, you have, this is not going anywhere. This is the tip of the iceberg. And I think what you were saying is absolutely correct. The dollar signs are, are going to follow this. And I mean, and if you haven't been following the story, there are already venture capital groups and investment groups, private equity groups that have formed in order to um, seek out investments in psychedelics, specifically psilocybin. Well, I want to circle back to Ferris just for folks out there who don't don't understand the level of investor we're talking about. I just pulled up his wiki just to run down some of his private previous activity. Um, 
he's an angel investor and advisor to startups, as, as you mentioned. He's invested or advised in startups such as StumbleUpon, Posterous, Evernote, Daily Burn, Shopify, Reputation.com, Trippy, and TaskRabbit. He's a pre-seed money advisor to Uber. <laughs> he was one of the first investors. He was pre-seed, pre-seed round advisor to Uber. I mean, this guy has has he has an eye for investments, and it's clear that he also has um, a philanthropic um, sort of a positive reason for being involved with this. I mean, I I think that it, you know he's concerned about depression as an issue, and he sees this as a potential opportunity. But he's not dumb, right? He 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 he's not in the business of of dumb money. He's in the business of very smart money. So I, I feel good that we're um, getting in on this. Uh, albeit in a, a slightly less uh, uh, less uh, revenue-oriented manner. But I'm glad that we're getting into this at the same time that Tim Ferriss is. <laughs> well, I mean, because, you, you know, you've, you've experienced this in, in anything in the private sector where there's kind of, um, you know, there are, there are fads, there are, um, there are these kind of new waves of development and interesting new products that come and go all the time. But one of the things that, that you need in order to really make a movement or um, create funds, create large businesses is capital, right? And these these guys who have a a boatload of money, I mean, they they like being around interesting, cool people. They like spending their money and doing interesting, cool things, right? So you have the opportunities of these guys to go talk to Tim Ferriss at Johns Hopkins about. I'm assuming I I don't know what their level of relationship. I don't know if they would give, you know, Tim Ferriss a boardroom at Johns Hopkins to have investor meeting. Probably wouldn't. But um, the, you you have with Tim Ferriss this thing that kind of brings a little bit more interest and credibility from some of these guys who have a, a lot of money to who are kind of courting new interesting ideas. I mean, this this is this is a very these two things, these two names together, Johns Hopkins and Tim Ferriss, both in the same story. Um, and, and you notice this is a very long article um, in the New York Times about this. And there wasn't really any skepticism or criticism about psychedelic medicine, which I, right. I which is really notable. It's so interesting to watch this issue come up. And there's and there's there's more concern about um, medical marijuana dispensaries in certain jurisdictions in Florida than there is about major universities and major investors getting involved in psychedelics. You have seen very little activity from traditional sort of family-oriented conservative groups in D.C. This is something that's that's on the radar of uh, of the positive side, but the opposition really hasn't seen the form yet. And I expect that there will be operation, you know, opposition because this is a you know historically this is a pretty aggressive substance that we're talking about. Right, and I think I think it's impossible to ignore the fact that the that marijuana and cannabis, the cannabis market has kind of set a, a precedent like this. A lot of the same people that are looking at psychedelic medicine either were involved in or closely studied how cannabis developed over the last two decades. And one of the lessons that that of, of kind of the age we're living in that a lot of people have learned in this space and kind of public health and, and drugs is, is, is that you with stuff like this where there's an, they, they see an opening always chasing that opening and blowing up that opportunity and, and making it as big as possible ends up paying dividends because it, it very rarely gets clawed back. And so if they have this opportunity 
to fund research and fund these programs at Johns Hopkins or any number of, of universities around the country or around the world, that's producing academic research. That academic research turns into stories. Those stories, you know, influence, they, they get spread through social media, people read them. It starts to change the public opinion. And the faster they move through that process, the more impacts it has on public opinion. The more public opinion shifts, the more they kind of get leverage in the political sphere, which is where you need to have the legal and regulatory changes in order to, to create systems to monetize this, this stuff, to either bring it into the, uh, the current medical establishment or to create kind of these niche, non-traditional medical al- avenues like medical marijuana kind of pioneered. I think, again, this is this is the beginning of what I think is going to be a pretty significant movement, because now that Johns Hopkins is involved, that this, I mean, you can't overstate the amount of credibility that they bring to this. And it's going to be hard, you know, if you were University of Wisconsin or University of Florida or UCLA, and, and you can't really poo-poo when one of your, you know, department heads comes and says, hey, I'd like to do some research into psychedelics. You know, look at all of this amazing work and published articles coming out of Johns Hopkins. Like we can't let them have that corner to themselves. So let's let's backtrack a little bit and, and talk specifically about what we mean when we talk about um, psilocybin study. So that the Johns Hopkins Johns Hopkins has kind of pioneered these studies, and and they all kind of follow a very similar blueprint um, where you select a participant based on the condition that they they seem to be suffering from. So one of the things that we discussed on the last podcast was a study that closely tracked people who were suffering from terminal cancer. And, and you know, these were people who were, were likely going to die from their cancer diagnosis within a year and um, were suffering from profound depression and anxiety. And so these patients, like like many others who are going through these who are participants in these studies, you come in, um, these patients uh, have a complete medical history, um, and they sit down with a psychologist, and um, they kind of talk through what their symptom is. There's a, the symptoms are, there's questionnaires, they, they do a, a very uh, lengthy and deep psychological and medical profile of those patients. Then on treatment day, you know, the, the patient will come into um, the, the office, they will take their dose of psilocybin, um, and frequently, you know, they'll they'll wear headphones with music, or they'll they'll wear blindfolds, sometimes both, and they'll have a medical professional with them, kind of guiding them through that process and urging them to you know remain calm and, and lean deeply into what they're seeing. And generally, the, these patients are told to kind of be open and willing to kind of accept, uh, almost kind of go 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 loose without getting um, panicked or anxious about the the effects because they're obviously they're hallucinating and so they can be very uncomfortable and disturbing for people and people who go through these participants who go through these studies when they talk about it they're like this wasn't just all you know rainbows and butterflies this was a very like existentially moving um, sometimes very uncomfortable experience but you know you have your your um, your doctor kind of applying playing the spirit guide through that that experience and they come out the other side and the anecdotal uh the anecdotal descriptions and descriptions from these studies that are coming out is it seems to be that that existential experience it it seems to 
kind of create a breakthrough with some of these patients where they're able to kind of get outside of their issues for um, a, a little bit of time and are able to, to gain some comfort from that experience. Did you see that thing about the mystical experience questionnaire? No, but I'm about to Google it. <laughs> and I, I assume this is no, no, no relationship to mystical of like New Orleans, right? Like the rapper? <laughs> That's pretty great. I'm real, I'm real into the mystical experience question now. If it has anything to do with like fire Neptune's produced singles in the early 2000s. <laughs> Count me in. <laughs> I, I was reading about the, the actual kind of practical elements of um, these studies. Right. And one finding many drug studies share is that any positive effects are far more likely if the participant has an especially intense trip. And so the intensity is subjectively graded using a variety of measures, including what scientists are called the MEQ, which stands for the Mystical Experience Questionnaire, um, <laughs> which I love. <laughs> um, this is great. I'm looking at it now. This is, this is really interesting. Right. And so... The mystical experience questionnaire is what researchers use to evaluate whether a participant has had, you know, quote, a mystical experience. And it, it's, it's loosely defined as an experience of profound unity with all that exists, a felt sense of sacredness, a sense of experience of truth and reality, fundamental level, um, deeply felt positive mood, transcendence of time and space, difficulty explaining the experience in words. Now, this is another drug. This is another instance of something that was not part of a kind of a legitimized medical science. And this is just kind of coming out of the woods as, as far as that kind of element of science is concerned. And so it seems like, you know, you, you use the tools you have. And so the, the, uh, it's funny because the Dr. Griffiths, who's the guy who's kind of running this for Johns Hopkins, was like was quoted as really not being a fan of calling their their test the mystical experience questionnaire. <laughs> Thought it was not not great marketing for what they're doing, but it, I mean it is what it is, and it's it's you know it's basically basically when you when you I'll let you Google this, but when you kind of Google what the criteria are for that questionnaire. It's it doesn't really seem like a sterile laboratory toolkit that you would use, but you know I I've never been through this process, so maybe the the finding out you know a experience of insight that all is one or a sense of reverence or and a sense of awe or awesomeness or you know these are probably perfectly valid questions to ask someone who's had a, a very significant psychological experience with psilocybin. Well, I'm, I'm looking at the author manuscript for the Griffith study and his colleagues, and there's an interesting tidbit here, which you know, I think maybe we had contemplated but didn't come down on a number, and I'll just read from this. Regarding contemporary use, at least 9% of U.S. adults have tried psilocybin mushrooms at least once in their lifetime. That's right, which is completely different. to me. Right, it's that completely a... different from the, from the published studies that we saw you know, that we read three weeks ago, which was said it was like 1% of 1%, right? Uh, 9% is uh, a bit unbelievable to me. That, that's, that's, that's unbelievable to me. Was it, was it of participants or just the general of, population? 9% 9, 9 of U.S. adults. Yeah, that, that does seem a bit that's, high. 
I, 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 to me, it just feels like 2% is more. <laughs> it's probably more. Actually, I would probably go to 1% is probably a more realistic. But hey, you know, maybe I'm not getting invited to the right parties. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, listen, listeners out there, people who are, are listening to Regulated in, in this podcast, if, if you, if you do have more information about kind of the, the, um, the prevalence of psychedelics, specifically psilocybin use on, you know, in the American population. We, we have, everything we've read has said that it's extremely, extremely low. Especially no, no, I want to, I want to stop you, Christian. I, I don't want anybody to contact us about mushrooms. <laughs> because we, we, we had a, a, a gentleman, the intern reached out to me the other day and, and we had an angry Twitter user who responded to, to something that the regulated at regulated pod on Twitter had posted and it was apparently angry because on the podcast we had discouraged people from picking wild mushrooms um, and, and thought that we should have been more encouraging. And I, I, we did not respond to that tweet. <laughs> when, nor am I encouraging people to go um, play Russian roulette with poisonous mushrooms out in the field somewhere. <laughs> right. And I mean, and I, I saw that tweet. My, I didn't respond to it either. But my, my thought when I saw that, so that was. I didn't feel like we were discouraged. I felt like it was well, we were discouraging people going out and picking their mushrooms. I I felt like it was more just saying that yeah, you know, you you can go out into cow fields and and pick these mushrooms like but as far as a regimented kind of medical supply chain, that right. that's almost certainly not going to be the way that it's distributed. Well, I, I you know, I feel I feel confident. I don't think we've really expressed a a, a political uh, belief as it relates to mushrooms, but uh, I feel pretty comfortable telling people that are learning about mushrooms from this podcast, please do not take the descriptions of these mushrooms and go out and try to find them in a field. No. It's not yeah. going to work out great. Absolutely not. <laughs> do not do that. Um I, you know, I, and I agree. I don't think that we, uh, I, I think that's, that's just generally, I think the tone of the show that we, that we've chosen to go with is that we're not super political about any of this stuff where it's more just a dissection of the relic regulatory, um, issues. But, but, you know, we, we're both very excited by this because it's something that's completely new as, as attorneys who are both in, you know, regulated industries, like seeing a com- a completely new regulated industry, just kind of emerging from the ether is, is just fascinating it's re- you don't get to see it that much right so with all of that said this is something that i think is moving but whether or not it's actually able to be monetized you know it's as something that has mass market implications i, I don't know tony how do you feel about that I'm, I'm still a little bit skeptical i feel like i say this every podcast but but i i do mean it one of the great things about america and our republic is that we have these 50 state laboratories and in the context of these mushrooms we actually have more than that because you're seeing municipalities like oakland um that are that are taking steps and municipalities in colorado so we're gonna have a lot of laboratories to see the effects but you know one thing that gives me heartburn now um is that you know psilocybin does carry risk. And I do feel like some of the municipal driven regulations or deregulation uh, more accurately um, has been perhaps too permissive. And I'm concerned that we see a few cases out of uh, Seattle uh, or Oakland 
um, that cause some concern, whether there's a serious health impact or a life ending event that occurs. So I, I, that's where my heartburn comes. Are, are advocates for this substance, which seems to be eff- uh, effective in, in many ways to treating uh, some medical um, issues, are advocates for this substance setting themselves up for failure later? And we end up with a temporary opening of this market in certain locations. We see some negative effects, and that slows down the federal operation that needs to be running concurrently to ease some of the federal restrictions. So that that's where my heartburn is now. Uh, but again, we have a laboratory, and we'll get to see the results. And I think that there's going to be the natural kind of progression of information, and and that that goes along with a lot of new industries. And one of the one of the kind of seedier parts of, of getting new information out there and in new industries is, you know, you're going to start seeing, if you haven't already, the airport Ramada Inn seminars on psilocybin, how to make a quick buck in, in, in psychedelics. And, and those are going to start popping up. And, and, and I, I have a little heartburn about... I'm, so when you have these local governments that are decriminalizing the possession and sale of a schedule one drug obviously cannabis has has taught the u.s population something kind of new which is if you know there are situations where states and and municipalities believe it's easier to ask for forgiveness and permission sometimes there is an opportunity there to get involved and make money i'm i'm concerned that this you know, psychedelics is not cannabis, is not going to have right. the same laissez-faire approach from the federal government. Mushrooms may not be the drug that we want to move fast and break stuff on. You know, cannabis, what's the worst that could happen? You know, somebody smokes a few too many, <laughs> a few too many puffs at a party and, and orders a Hungry Howie's pizza. But, you know, but we've we went through some of the health impacts here with mushrooms. And this this isn't an anti mushroom rant. This is just a commentary on if 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 there are potential adverse impacts that are statistically possible, the the more unregulated and sloppy the distribution network is, the more likely you're going to see those. And as we're seeing right now, looking cross industry, there have been some lung issues and and potential deaths um, that have uh, occurred recently that are connected, uh, loosely connected, but connected to vaping, or more specifically, connected to vapors. Now, the causation on those cases is 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 very questionable, right? We don't have any answers as to whether the vaping device um, was legal, illegal, THC, um, nicotine based, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and whether it actually caused the disease. But what we do have is a bunch of articles in the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Los Angeles Times decrying unregulated vaping. And and you see municipalities start, including San Francisco, starting to ban certain e-cigarettes and vaping devices to be sold in their in the municipality. So there's like there's a high margin of error here. Now, going back to the investment thing that we keep on talking about. You know, as you you get more commerce involved in this business, maybe you see, you know, an association pop up in D.C., um, uh, you know, and a more coordinated campaign that maybe handles this in a, a more strategic manner. Maybe I might call it a more responsible manner. But, you know, that's something we have to look out for. Right. Um, you know, I was at a I was at a cannabis conference back in 2014. I'm not, I'm not going to name him by name, but 
there was a guy who's who's kind of one of the founding fathers of the cannabis movement. He's he was an advocate from the beginning, and he's had a tremendous financial success in the industry. But he's on a panel, and the moderator asked each of the four or five men and women on the panel what his biggest fear was, um, you know, for the following years in the cannabis industry. And his response was by far the most compelling. And what he said was, "I'm afraid that a school bus driver, you know, is going to pop an edible." Um, it's going to overconsume and it's going to like drive off a bridge, right? Uh, obviously, that is that that is not like a scare tactic for cannabis because this guy was very successful in the cannabis industry. What it spoke to was this cataclysmic type of event that can swing that you completely lose your momentum and forward progress, and it swings momentum in the exact opposite direction. If this is perceived as being more um, common and 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 not truly pro- legally problematic in those areas, you really lower the reticence of, of you know, young people going out and, and seeking these things out for themselves. And, you know, there, there will be people who, when they're going out there and looking for things, they're going to pick up mistaken mushrooms, as we touched on the last podcast, which can have catastrophic effects. And so that would be my biggest fear moving forward with this, is that you have one of those cataclysmic events where you see all of this very interesting positive momentum kind of get clawed back by a very real negative occurrence that happens out out in society as a whole. Well, this is this is a fascinating subject, and I know um, we're going to continue coming back to the mushrooms because it, it really has potential to be the new cannabis in terms of how regulation and deregulation is accomplished state by state um, and eventually getting to the federal level, and also in terms of the market opportunity, um, whether it ends up being a more informal dispensary system or gets gobbled up by major operators and pharmaceuticals, there's going to be a lot of activity here. But moving on, Christian, do you have the shout-out of the week for us? Shout-out of the week is unquestionably going to Governor DeSantis and his people. Uh, huge right. regulated congratulations to how well he and his team handled Hurricane Dorian. Obviously, um, if you can, we, we would encourage you to give to the fine people who live in the Bahamas. As, as you know, if you follow it, you know, Hurricane Dorian basically stopped on top of their their home for a full day. And uh, just it was, the effects are catastrophic. And, you know, Representative Jones has been very, um, very forward and on trying to get some money and some aid to the Bahamas. So, you know, if you have the opportunity, definitely, definitely give. But on a positive note, you know, it, it's really wonderful to see how, you know, both parties just embraced how well the governor did um, with this hurricane. And, you know, you couldn't ask for a better performance, I think. Well, yeah, I, Chevron is, has been, Representative Jones has been a great uh, advocate for the Bahamas. He has family members there. Um, I recommend people who are interested in sort of what he's been doing in ways that you can direct funds to, to check him out either on Twitter. It's at Chevron Jones. Or you can go to his website, chevronjones.com. But, you know, one of the things I think that's so impressive is that he immediately, you know, he's a, a, a one of the leading Democratic members of the legislature. And he immediately put aside sort of political stuff and went to the president and then went to Republican members of the U.S. Senate um, and, and started working on solutions, sort of, sort of results-oriented solutions to, to what we could be doing to help the Bahamas. So my understanding is that he's made some you know, he, he's accomplished some movement on a federal level there. So that's impressive. So, yeah, great shout out. Thanks for listening to this episode of Regulated. Find us at regulatedpod.com or at regulatedpod on Twitter. We'll talk to you next week.